Hey, welcome everyone. Uh, welcome to Soap Notes. And listen, I am so pleased and honored to have Belinda Rutledge with me today. Um, Belinda is the Executive Vice President for Federal Affairs at American Physicians Group. Um, and she's also been a fantastic scientific advisory board member for NAVA Health. So welcome, Belinda. Welcome to the conversation. Thank you. Where Thank are you, you from today? So today I'm in South Carolina. So, but um, on Wednesday, I'm going back to DC nice. um, for a week. And we'll see if I'm able to interact with anyone. Cause you know, right now it's, yeah. it's hard sometimes to get appointments. People are reluctant. So, but I think things are starting to open up a little bit. So I'm eager to get back to DC. I think you're like one of very many who want to get back into some in-person, like in-person conversations and doing it safely and responsibly, of course. Right, right. Um, and is, is Washington DC like your home normally uh, when it wasn't COVID? Uh, yes, uh, yeah. Um, I w spent most of my time in DC and then on the weekends would fly back uh, to South Carolina where I also have a home. But I'm um, eager to get back to DC. You know, Jay, it's really hard to, unless you already have a relationship with someone and you've known them, it's hard to do Zoom calls and have yeah. that uh, connectivity. So there's something about being across the table from someone and oh, yeah. talking to them and getting a sense of what their passion is, what mm -hmm. the member, particularly on Capitol Hills, really interest in. But we've been able to be very effective, I think, through this last year. Um, I have, on an average, two or three calls from um, a legislative aides a week. Um, mm -hmm. So this week, I have uh, some from the Senate Finance Committee ways and means last uh, last week I had some from the health committee so yeah. we do stay very connected but it's not the same do you know what I mean it's as yeah. uh, particularly many of them I've known for years yeah it's not the same but I'll just tell you this I'm so excited for this discussion because I've heard you speak at our scientific advisory board meeting and I'm always fascinating with your perspectives can you just tell me a little bit like I haven't heard what what is your kind of story? Like, how did you get into this position? Tell me a little bit more about your kind of yes. your professional. Sure. So I started as a nurse. I'm a nurse practitioner. Okay. I have a master's degree in nursing as well as an MBA. And I actually moved from nursing into a, a health system CEO. So I was a health system CEO for 14, 15 years wow. over very large health systems and several of them were regional. I had um, several states in which I was responsible for. Mm -hmm. And then I was asked to go into SEMA mine, actually help set it up. I was one of three or four people that actually went in at the beginning um, to help set it up. And um, 
it was a really exciting time. I've known Don Burke and Marilyn Tavener for a yeah. number of years, and they had suggested I come in. I never worked in the federal government or any kind of government before that time. <laughs> so nice. it was a little bit of a, a shock, <laughs> mm -hmm. but um, I certainly uh, really enjoyed it. So many brilliant and committed people work for the federal government, and it was a, a real exciting time for us. And well, so- Go ahead, but well, I gotta tell you, CMMI I just think is fascinating because of its ability to take things and move them along in a in a demonstration models. Um, it's just been really fantastic to see the how CMI has functioned over the years. I agree. I agree. Can you believe it's been over a decade? <laughs> um, I mean, and they really have transformed healthcare. It really mm -hmm. is a very exciting part of CMS. Now, how long have you been with American Physicians Group? It will be three years in April. Can you believe it? Time flies so fast. So it's been three years. Um, Don Crane, the CEO, um, contacted me and said, would I ever be interested in coming back? Because I had left CMMI and was doing consulting around the country. And he called, he said, could I entice you to come back to uh, DC? Went and met with them, was so excited with the vision and the mission of APG. And as you know, it is a physician organization um, and has ACOs and CINs in it. Mm -hmm. And they have to be committed to moving to risk-based contracts. They could be the, in them right now or on their way, but they have to be committed to that mission. And we now have 350, over 300 and 50 wow. practices that represent like 200,000 physicians. And when wow. I tell Capitol Hill or CMS mm -hmm. those numbers, their eyes get big. And I said, this, these yeah. are the trailblazers. These are the ones, and Nava Health is one of them, mm -hmm. that sort of have picked up this, this mantle and it has become a trailblazer in terms of moving the industry forward in terms of um, healthcare improvement. And your members are some of the most innovative and, you know, and they're taking on risk already today. So I agree with you. You're, you've got a great organization there. Um, you know, Valinda, I would love, Nava Health is really dedicated to senior care. Like we are trying to really improve the healthcare experience for seniors. It, do you have any fond memory of a senior, like when you were growing up, a grandparent that you could share with, uh, with Nava Health? Sure, sure. I remember my um, great-grandmother and um, mm -hmm. her son had just passed and we went to attend the uh, a funeral and this was in Virginia. And she, all of the women in our family lived to 95 to 100. Oh my gosh. That's great. <laughs> they usually live by themselves in their house. There you go. Yeah. And I remember her wanting to get out of the car and walk by herself down this road. And I just remember this just incredible lady that yeah. was walking with her head held high. Do you know what I mean? Uh, walking down the road because she wanted to stretch her legs That's and right. return to her farmhouse. And oh my gosh. Uh, just the amount of uh, dedication and strength of purpose 
and mm -hmm. yet commitment to family just came through and I can just remember seeing the back of her because of course my <laughs> my family wanted to follow her because right. we didn't want anything to happen to her but she wanted to be by herself walking yeah. down <laughs> so you know I gotta tell you that's a great story because of the independent spirit of our seniors you know and yes Zyre to stay independent. I mean, that is a great story that really kind of leads us to um, better understanding seniors. Um, right. So I would love to get your perspective on the new administration, the Biden administration. Now, we know that uh, Xavier Becerra has just been confirmed Health and Human Services Secretary. Can you tell us a little bit about the Biden administration, top players, and then also some of the top priorities? Sure. So I will tell you, um, first of all, they're in the midst of getting everybody in place. And so as you know, Jay, it takes a while. Yeah. Um, it took the Trump administration close to May to June. So I think it's gonna take a similar amount of time to get everybody in. They're moving as quickly yeah. as, they, as they can. Mm -hmm. uh, Liz Fowler, because that position head of CMMI is not a confirmed position, she started a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as you said, Secretary Becerra just got confirmed and sworn in last week. So mm -hmm. I think today might be his first day, first unless day he office. snuck into the office over right. the weekend. But mm -hmm. I had heard from several CM, CMS people that I, I know very well that they were just eagerly awaiting him. His mm -hmm. chief of staff, who he'd worked with for a number of years that came from California, had already been in there. And so they had several uh, staff members that were already there. But in terms of policy de development, until he gets there and yeah. starts meeting with his team, things are sort of on hold. And we were seeing that as I reached out to some of the CMS career staff in terms of what was happening from a quality perspective in MSSP, what's happening from price transparency. It was clear they had to wait until he comes in, sets down. As well as Chiquita, um, Brooks mm -hmm. Lashore, she's gonna be the CMS administrator and they're supposed to be putting her paperwork um, forward uh, probably the end of March. So she probably will be in there the middle of April towards the end of April. But Liz has already started and she's hit the ground running and she is an incredible person. I have known her for a decade and a half and yeah. she is just a very, very thoughtful leader and will just be superb. And she's quite experienced. Like she's been at the CMS for quite some time. Yeah, she was at a Senate Finance Committee, and then she worked in uh, the um, Obama administration. There you go. So she's um, very, very familiar. And then from there, she's in the Commonwealth Fund. And um, the Commonwealth Fund, under her leadership and David Blumenthal, um, a, about three or four months ago, actually developed a white paper about their recommendations for healthcare redesign going forward and what CMMI should do going forward. So mm. I'd highly recommend all yeah. of you to download um, that paper. And Jay, I can certainly send it on to oh. you. It's a white paper on their website, but it she was one of the major leaders in uh, mm. writing that. Yeah, that, that would be fantastic. And I know I heard you speak before about, you know, just the 
Biden administration priorities that COVID was going to be like number one priority. Right. Others? others? Yes. So I would uh, tell you the second one will be access to care. And they've done some of that through the American Rescue Plan. As you know, they've um, opened the special enrollment uh, uh, period um, through the marketplace. Through the American Rescue Plan, they've also given additional premiums so people are able to more easily purchase on the marketplace. They're Mm -hmm. also trying to entice the 12 states uh, that have not expanded Medicaid um, to do so uh, with that. So their first priority is COVID and getting vaccines into arms which yep. I think they're doing a phenomenal job. It's really, it's starting to really <laughs> take off. Yeah, I know. Great. The second is access to care to make sure people have access to care, particularly affordable care. Yeah. Um, and third is uh, health disparities okay. um, to begin to address the health disparities. And I think this is something that we're going to see change in the models and in the models evaluation. We have in the past looked at cost and quality Mm -hmm. as the evaluation of whether a model is successful. I think this administration will add a third category, health equity. They Mm -hmm. will want to know what is the difference in terms of ethnic and racial and gender disparity within those uh, results. So I think all of us need to start being prepared for that. Um, to look at how we track those, to see the outreach that we can do with our underserved communities. Yeah, and it's it's really, that's uh, such a great priority. Um, I remember, you know, um, back, I was actually on an African-American Health Institute. This was like almost 20 years ago where we were talking about healthcare disparities for the African-American community. And in fact, that same issue is still... Uh, present. And I have to say, I don't think we've made the progress that we really need to make with health disparities. So having it as a focus seems to me like we're going to be able to get some more energy around, you know, addressing the health disparities. Right, right. Well, Valinda, I really want to talk about, so you know that NAVA Health has been a convener for BPCI and BPCI Advanced. um, And we have really had a, a, a significant you know, um, portion of our business around the bundles. Right. So it's very um, timely, really, that we could discuss with you, like, where do you see the model year four going? And then overall, do you see bundles or episodic payments continuing to progress um, in, the, in the next administration? Yeah. So I I think a short answer. Absolutely. I think bundles are an integral part of the portfolio and we'll continue to see evolution in that thinking. I think uh, there is some elements that will probably change with it. I think number one, mandatory. Um, Mm -hmm. Certainly some of the losses that when they looked at BPCI and uh, the amount of loss that Medicare uh, uh, CMMI took with that model was yeah. directly related to what they continue to believe as a selection bias. Mm-hmm. Um, that if you think you're going to make money, then you're going to select <laughs> that yeah. bundle. If you yeah. don't think you're going to make money, you're not going to select it. And so mm-hmm. 
Um, you know, and I think also, as you remember, when it first started, we had a lot more of the participants in the bundles take large numbers. Um, yes. And now as time went on, we saw instead of 10 or 15 episodes, uh, people were analyzing and figuring out whether they made money or not. And then they would do the two, possibly three, but no more, typically no more than that generally. And yeah. I think because of that, it began to weaken the program and it caused losses. So I think that we will see mandatory um, mm -hmm. bundles. I think the other thing is, as we continue to look at population-based models and primary care models, mm -hmm. bundles become the vehicle in which we can engage the specialist in. Okay. So the question becomes, do you start down the path of condition bundles? Um, mm -hmm. Do you start down the path that you talk about uh, back pain, you know, yeah. whether it's a medical or surgical intervention? And how do you do that? How do you develop the bundle in which uh, the specialist has to work with the primary care uh, physician uh, with that? Or do you start with a large number of cardiology episodes or oncology episodes that would allow the transformation of just that specialty? That's certainly a lot easier to manage yeah. in CMMI but in terms of will make a difference in terms of the overall cost? Uh, do you know, is it better for them to begin to think about condition bundles? But I certainly believe we will see a lot of bundles come out okay. probably in the next 12 months. Um, and I think some of them will be mandatory. Okay, I mean, that's very helpful because, you know, in, in some ways with the value-based care tailwinds, it, it seems like there was a lot of attention paid to the population-based models. And I was very interested in like how you would describe the episodic models like bundles fitting within a population model. I mean, is it difficult to really carve out risk and that type of thing when you're, when you're doing that um, model? Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, when we first started, um, because everyone was so anxious to get things started, we didn't care if there was almost double counting of the savings yeah. as long as people are participating. Now, I think um, certainly from a population based, it's mm -hmm. uh, the stakes are gone high. The financial stakes have dramatically increased, thereby the population based participants are getting more and more nervous with the introduction of bundles. And yet mm -hmm. there is a need to have bundles to be able to engage the specialists and look at particularly as we begin to talk about uh, condition. Plus, as we know, not all providers are ready to take substantial risk or start moving into capitated payments. So it is a pathway to help smaller and less sophisticated uh, providers to begin that journey. So I think a lot of the questions are happening. One, how do you avoid the double counting? But yeah. then moving into a much more, I think, um, broader question, which is how can we take bundles, episodic um, uh, payments and embed mm -hmm. them within yeah. a, uh, a population base? Can you take it and embed it within direct contracting, mm -hmm. global contracting? Um, and that is something as they begin to talk about geographic, 
the geographic entity, um, direct contracting entity for geographic could have decided at this point that's on hold, as you know, but it could have decided to do episodic bundles in their geographic area. Yeah. Um, so that is an example of taking a population based and mm -hmm. integrating episodic payments within that. Yeah, I mean, I, you mentioned direct contracting and I, I'd love for you to give us an overview of the direct contracting models, because I know that the geographic model was just recently placed on hold, but maybe you could tell us about the professional model and the global model and just help us understand them better. Sure. So uh, first of all, as you know, um, the ACOs that we have, we have first the pathways to success, and that yeah. is um, uh, oversight um, is at uh, CMS, okay, mm -hmm. it's the Center for Medicare. And that uh, does, uh, does fee-for-service, everyone bills for fee-for-service, then in 18 months, they do a reconciliation, and then you yep. get your savings. But everyone continues to bill in a fee-for-service mindset. That's okay? right, that's right. Now, what CMMI has said is we need to move away from that mindset of billing for fee-for-service. So as long as everybody's putting codes in, you know, and then we do this reconciliation in 18 months, yeah. we forget we're just still in yeah. a fee-for-service. Click the button, put the code in, get my money, do you know what I mean, in less than a month. So what a professional and global does is that they use capitated payments. Okay. And so the professional has a 50% risk, global mm -hmm. has 100%. The professional, the only capitation they get is for primary care. Global, mm -hmm. they can do just primary care capitation or they can do total. And there's some systems that are gonna do total that are get the total cost of care in uh, on a monthly basis. Yep. Now, the advantage of capitation is, and I've talked to many of our APG members, probably greater than 60 to 70% of the um, professional and global uh, direct contracting uh, participants are APG members. So we have quite a, quite a bit. You really and, do. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, when I've talked to them and I've said, why, what do you see the advantage of this model over MSSP? Okay, mm -hmm. the pathways to success. And they said, it's capitation. Mm -hmm. When I'm taking the dollar as the entity and give it to the provider, yeah. then it starts breaking down that barrier of I'm in a fee for service. I'm not submitting claims anymore in which I get paid. Yeah. So it begins to uh, consolidate and solidify the thinking that we're moving away from fee-for-service. So you know, they I, feel I'm, that I'm gonna, it aligns. I'm gonna interject one point here because this was probably about uh, 10 years ago when I was in charge of a, on the delivery system side of moving our delivery system to, um, to more value-based care. And one of the one of my mentors said to me, says, fee for service isn't just a payment model, it's a mindset. And the mindset of the doctors are like, hey, I'm doing this 
because I'm doing it the right way. This is the right way to take care of patients is to do it in a kind of a very uh, efficient fee-for-service model. And what you're describing, frankly, Belinda, I think is brilliant because once you start getting out of that just direct service payments, you start thinking more holistically about the patient and what is it that I can do for this patient when I'm not delivering a service? Right, right. I just think it's fascinating. Right. Yeah. And so, um, so I always tell everybody when they tell, when they ask me, what's the major difference between MSSP and direct contracting is one, you're still billing fee for service with some reconciliation months and months later, the other one, you get a cap payment on the front end. And, mm -hmm. and we have found out from our APG members, those that were in cap payments, okay, yeah. during the pandemic with the up and down in the volume did so much better because mm -hmm. those prospective capitated payments are based upon what the previous year was. So if you have yeah. a little on evenness, suddenly you have the smoothing of your revenue stream. And yeah. then you can actually, CMS has allowed both of those programs to have them request for additional money on top of the primary care. Primary care cap is usually about two to 3% of total yeah. cost of care. They can ask up to 7%. Mm -hmm. And so that additional money now will be calculated in the end against your yeah. you know, expenditures. expenditures. But you get money on the front end. How yeah. many times does the federal government give you money on the front end interest-free yeah. for you to start dealing with your infrastructure and putting your care coordination in. And I tell you, this has been a, a big issue for um, providers in value-based care, um, especially the, the smaller providers that aren't backed by a, a larger health system. Independent physicians is always about, I have to invest so much up front in order to get the result of better care and less utilization and more care coordination. This model, as you're describing it, right, it allows the provider to get that money up front and understand he, she can then use it to help the patients stay out of the hospital and improve their care coordination. Right, absolutely. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the geographic model and um, what, why do you think it was placed on pause? Yeah, so first of all, it's not just the geographic model. Many other models were placed on pause. Okay. It's not uncommon when a new administration comes in to sort of pull back and sort of say, are these models aligning with our priorities? You know, mm -hmm. the Trump administration did that, if you remember, and they decided um, to not have the mandatory CV model. Right. Do you remember that? Remember that and yeah. then there was a part B model. Remember it was a value-based model in which Patrick Conway had spent a lot of time in developing in terms of paying providers money mm -hmm. based upon, you know, the outcomes related yes. to the part B. Both of those were evaluated and stopped, do you know what I mean, during the Trump administration the first mm -hmm. few months. Yeah. So stopping and sort of saying we're assessing it and deciding whether we want to go through with these. So there's probably about four or five of them 
that mm -hmm. they have officially said, we're going to take a pause. Okay. Now, the geographic model probably was the one that um, had the most interest with people when they were like, oh, does this mean is not going to go through? We don't know that yet, and it remains to be seen. Yeah. The, the real pushback from the geographic model um, happened from uh, two perspectives. Number one was current ACOs. They were mm -hmm. concerned that a geographic entity would take precedent over them mm -hmm. um, in terms of um, a beneficiary assignment. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. that was uh, concerning them. Now, CMMI had said if you were in the global model, you were, uh, you were, um, uh, it took precedent over the geographic. Okay. Yeah. But many of the ACOs, particularly the ones in, Pathways to success were very, very concerned about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, the second one was beneficiaries. Beneficiaries were concerned about mm -hmm. what this would mean to them if non-traditional providers came in as wow. geographic. So mm -hmm. they were concerned about privatizing of Medicare mm -hmm. fee-for-service which, as you know, from a Democrat uh, priority, they were also concerned about it. So mm -hmm. they've put a pause on it to mainly address both of those issues. We okay. certainly don't want a program that weakens the programs that we already have there. We want yeah. them to continue to grow and strengthen. Um, so we've got to figure out how we work with that. Now, will they go through with geographic or will they decide to take elements of geographic and move them into the other? There are some elements of the geographic model that at an APG level, many of our members uh, were really excited about. One of the most exciting was mm -hmm. that you would get um, assignment yes. from beneficiaries rather mm -hmm. than just claims. So yeah. all of our models, including bundles, okay, and population-based yeah. and primary care is all claims attributed, yeah. okay? And as you know, in certain parts of the country, it's mm -hmm. very difficult uh, for us, uh, for beneficiaries to access a primary care yeah. or the primary care panels are filled or transportation makes it difficult or they may have healthcare deserts in which there's very little opportunity in that area. So to me, it was exciting to have an entity that had some financial responsibility as well as quality responsibility get assigned these Fine. beneficiaries. Yeah. So they would have to then go out and figure out how to provide that care. So mm -hmm. I love the idea of us looking for a model that isn't just claims attributed. Yeah, that, that assignment, you know, from a provider's perspective of knowing who you're responsible for or accountable for the care, like is, is just critically important. Um, and I know a lot of uh, MA plans have, you know, HMO products that are assigned. And in some ways they've worked quite well. Um, mm -hmm because it's still, a member still has the freedom to travel to different geographic areas. It's just that you can now understand better what, what this population is doing if it's assigned to you. Um, right, right. And if you don't do a good job in engaging them, 
and yeah. then feeling and then right. they go everywhere and you yeah. have a financial responsibility. So you you're going to have to work to earn their trust, in my estimation, right. when it's not claims attributed. What they're calling it, and I heard this recently, is it's called passive enrollment. So I yeah. guess that's the new word for it. It's yeah. passive yeah. enrollment. They're mm -hmm. enrolled into it, and then it's up to the financial entity to reach out and get them engaged. Well, I mean, from a, I'll just tell you this, from when I was leading physicians, one of the things that was really important to be able to get across to physicians is that, you know, this member or this patient who's seeing you right now, you have to understand what's happening when they're not seeing you. And the assignment process or the, um, you know, this pathway to enrollment, basically you now feel an accountability to take care of that person more holistically. Versus if it's all claims-based, you really don't know right. till later that, oh, these were the people I needed to take care of. Um, right. Well, th that's really exciting. I mean, I think there are definite tailwinds in value-based care. Um, I'd love to hear a little uh, prognostication from you, Belinda, around where you think like in the next year or two years, some of this will go both on, maybe we can start with the public health emergency. Um, do you think there's going to be some things that stick with us after the public health emergency? I know there's a lot of conversation about um, telehealth and even MedPAC weighed in on it, I think, right. earlier this month. So um, what do you think will stick after the public health emergency uh, expires? Yeah, so I think, uh, first of all, um, right now, as you know, the public health emergency goes until the, I think the end of April, but everyone's anticipating that it will be um, re, uh, do you know what I mean, uh, confirmed for another uh, 90 days, okay? 90 days. In fact, okay. a lot of people are is saying, informally, of course, because you never know for certain, but people yeah. are saying that we can pretty well um, uh, anticipate that it, it probably will be here until the end of uh, 2021, okay? okay. Uh, because as long as you have the PHE, you're able to give uh, new vaccines, doing new uh, therapeutics, the emergency mm -hmm. utilization authorization. Yes. If yeah. you don't have it, then they're unable to do that. So there is a value of keeping the PHE. Mm -hmm. um, from an FDA uh, perspective and a COVID yeah. perspective. But from a provider perspective, we love that because there's been lots of new things we've been able to test in terms of redesigning care. Um, mm -hmm. One of them, as you have said, is telehealth, okay? Mm -hmm. Another one has been hospital to home. Um, yeah. Hospital to home, sniff at home, those have been allowed to be tested. And then another one is the remote patient monitoring. People seem to forget that, but there was a lot of, they allowed new as well as established patients and they allowed the expansion of mid-level providers um, and also uh, providers such as respiratory therapists to be able to be a part of the remote patient monitoring. So. Um, with that, what do I expect to be after the PHE? I think there'll be a big push for telehealth to continue. Okay. Now, whether it stays parity or not to in-person visit remains yeah. to be seen. <laughs> As you know, 
MedPAC has recommended that it continues for two years mm -hmm. in parity why we collect data. And That's through true. the data, we're able to collect um, how to prevent fraud and overutilization. People are very, very concerned about it, mm -hmm. uh, the fraud and overutilization. CBO is, has told Congress mm -hmm. that the cost of um, you know, EM visits will go up if telehealth, do you know yeah. what I mean, is, is approved. So we've got mm -hmm. to figure out what are the guardrails, okay, yeah. to prevent it. Then second, what is the appropriate reimbursement? It, I would be very surprised if they kept it um, in person because on it's not, right. yeah. yeah, because the same as um, in person, because for the very reason you've calculated the EM mm -hmm. uh, with using bricks and mortar and all the equipment. Now yeah. we do have equipment that we use for telehealth uh, that mm -hmm. has to be into it. But I think uh, the Congress will go along with MedPAC's recommendation, which is for two years post PHE, keep it in uh, the parity and yeah. collect data. So we're able to look at the effects of it and then determine the appropriate fee schedule. Do you yeah. mean uh, with that? Yeah, I mean, I, I can imagine that there'd be a lot of consternation around, you know, um, you know, potential abuse or overuse of telehealth services. If you're, you know, if it is getting paid at the same as an in-person visit and that, you know, you're able to do these much more efficiently, but is it as effective as, the one thing that's been interesting, Melinda, is like getting a telehealth program going, you know, pre-COVID was really difficult. There was a lot pushback both from the consumer and the provider. And I gotta tell you, probably in a couple of months, much of that was overcome because of the COVID effect, right? I'm, I'm just curious if you think the consumer is at a different place now with telehealth, like willing to use that much more um, frequently than they had pre-COVID. Uh, absolutely. I think part of it has been the inability for some of the Medicare beneficiaries to be able to go and visit their family. So mm -hmm. they got comfortable with Zoom. They got comfortable yeah. with, you know, some of these other platforms. I think yeah. also some of the EMRs, I don't know if you've taken um, a part in it. I've had a couple of telehealth visits and yep. they've been extremely efficient. I haven't yeah. had to go and get on a Zoom or anything mm -hmm. like that or a Skype. Yeah. that it was embedded within the appointment and all I had to do was push the button and they had <laughs> so made easy. it. I know it is. Yeah, so easy. So Why I did we do this before? I know, yeah. but if you remember at the first, mm -hmm. I can remember my husband having a telehealth visit and I could hear him um, mm -hmm. in the background uh, because he's retired as the, his cardiologist is trying yeah. to tell him how to get on a Skype. <laughs> yeah. well, and so uh, now he just has to push the appointment and he's right there. It makes it so much easier. Well, I had, I had a couple of uh, physician friends of mine talk about um, um, etiquette because they, of course, are professionally and they're dressed up, right? Usually in a lab coat. And some of the patients were really literally just rolling out of bed with their pajamas on having this Zoom call. He said, we got to work on, you know, just making sure it's a 
little more professional. But <laughs> no, it's been it's been fantastic. And I also, you know, one thing we can't discount is just the accessibility. Like in many, like a, I'm going to take it back to seniors. Many seniors had trouble traveling in to see their doctor. Right. Rural, especially rural seniors had trouble. And it was a basically an all-day event. I remember at one point tracking the number of hours saved for the patient if they didn't have to come in and do a visit. And right. that was, it's really revealing uh, in that way. Um, so is there any other crystal ball, um, I guess, tailwinds that you think uh, we should be aware of as we're heading you know, through this public health emergency through 2021, and I'm thinking of 2022, any, any other innovations that you see? Yeah, so I think that one, uh, health disparity, I think we yeah. all have to look at how we're measuring it, how we're developing uh, connections with uh, the communities, that we're not trying to do it all by ourselves. Um, you know, I, I think the vaccine hesitancy, um, some of that work has made it realize that even if you have a white coat and you're sitting in front of someone, um, mm -hmm. if you're not a part of that community, that level of trust is just not right. there for to receive a vaccine. So we've got to take those lessons and say it, it's mm -hmm. the same thing. Right. If we're trying to educate someone about diabetes or congestive heart failure and we have our white coats on and we come mm -hmm. in very formal That's versus right. somebody from the community. So I think that um, uh, taking those lessons, those mm -hmm. connections, um, HHS is going to start rolling out quite a bit of support for the vaccine hesitancy. And right. I think it, it would behoove all of us to watch those, listen from them, figuring out best practices and gathering those for us as we roll out uh, community initiatives to increase our beneficiary engagement. I think um, the second thing is um, maternity, looking at um, uh, maternity uh, issues, how do we better serve in terms of decreasing the amount of, of preterm pre births that we have. Yeah, yeah. Um, the third is behavioral health and mental health um, issues. This last uh, 1.9 trillion gave a lot of money in that bill for grants, some yeah. of them to the states, but others for providers and the states will then be able to access providers. But I keep telling providers, think mm -hmm. about how you can access some of these to address some of these uh, behavioral health and mental health issues within your Medicare population, mm -hmm. uh, within your MSSP. What are some innovative programs that you can actually get some grants to then um, stand them up um, with that? So I think uh, that would be real exciting. You know, and that's such a crucial, crucial issue. We've, we've seen it, you know, through the pandemic and, and the behavioral health and access to behavioral health services will be, I think, really, really important as we go out through 2021. Um, well, Valinda, this has been fantastic. Thank well, thank you, you so much for taking the time to share your expertise with us and you know we love you on the scientific advisory board and we're so pleased to be a part of the uh, american physicians group so thank you very much thank you